Well, hello everyone from the attic of the Prentice home where I have recently moved um, boxes and pieces of furniture and dozens of random Legos out of the way to clear out a corner of the attic uh, to have a little tiny place of solitude in our house during this time of quarantine. And I'm sitting on about, I don't know, 12 blankets layered on the hardwood floor of the attic. So it's not exactly comfortable, but it is quiet for the time being and I do have a small window so that's nice. Well this week you're getting the digital liturgy just as you have the last few weeks but you're getting it a day early and you can go ahead and listen as you are doing presently. Uh, and this recording includes a short homily as has become customary during this time of lockdown. But we're actually going to be meeting, meeting in quotes, as a church tomorrow morning, mostly as a time to reconnect relationally, but we'll also have an abbreviated liturgy with songs and prayer and reading. So you can log on to uh, that Zoom meeting. Uh, if you get our emails, you can find the link there. And uh, in that liturgy, our gospel reading will be from Mark chapter two, where Jesus is asked, why his disciples do not fast, or at least why they weren't fasting in the time around this episode. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, in my drinking days, I would often put a warm beer in the freezer uh, if I thought I was close to exhausting my supply of cold ones. But when you're drinking, you know, you're not quite as conscious of recent actions. So those warm beers would sometimes get left in the freezer just a little bit too long, like overnight. If it was a can of beer, I might be okay. The aluminum would sometimes expand and no mess. But if it was a bottle, well, the next person to open the freezer, normally my dear wife, Katie, might find pieces of glass and beer icicles everywhere in our freezer. Now, I might be tempted to blame that feat of brainlessness on alcohol, but I have to admit that over the last few years of sobriety, I might have also left a can or two of LaCroix in the freezer. Now, Jesus is talking about this new thing that he is not only teaching about, but inaugurating in his person, this thing that is so potent and alive and powerful and enlarging that it can't be bottled up, that it destroys the outdated containers that people assume were designed to hold it. 
The kingdom of God, which is Mark and other gospel writers shorthand for the reign and the rule, the presence of God's healing power, is a new spiritual reality that even the long-established, long-practiced and cherished institutions of establishment religion could not contain. And God is being inaugurated as king in the person of Jesus in ways that co-opt and subvert all systems of oppressive rule and dominance, whether they be religious, economic, political, or symbolic. And he gives us, Mark does here, three images that explain the newness and the power of Jesus' kingdom. In answer to people asking him why, if John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, uh, that his disciples do not, the, these images come in response to that question. Well, let's, let's look at them briefly in reverse order. So, first of all, wineskins. He says you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Excuse me, that was a sip of LaCroix. In Jesus' day, they used animal skins instead of wine bottles, and you needed new skins to hold new wine. Now, this image is very far-reaching, and it works on multiple levels, which is perhaps why Jesus uses three images to say essentially the same thing. And it shows that our spiritual ancestors, that is, Mark's hearers, had at least as much difficulty with and resistance to change as we do. We are constitutionally opposed to personal change. We become attached and even addicted to things that we know aren't good for us because we're more fearful of unknown potential pain than the pain that we're already familiar with. Mary Shelley says in Frankenstein, her novel, nothing is so painful to the human mind as a great and sudden change. Jesus is pronouncing a kingdom of radical, comprehensive change. And the religious leaders of his day resisted him because his teaching could not be fit into the systems that they oversaw. In other words, their rule, their system of control was being overthrown. And when presented with this new idea, their confirmation bias worked against them as it does us. It keeps us and keeps our leaders locked into failed or failing paradigms simply because they've become habituated. They've become familiar. Perhaps these systems have worked or have been helpful before, but to admit that they've run their course or need to be adapted or need to be uh, thrown, away, thrown out, this means to admit a lack of omniscience that's just too much certainty to give up. And that's too much certainty to give up. And for our part, we allow ourselves to become overly attached to a politician or a political party, to a system of doctrine or interpretation. And we fight about these things, not because of some misguided altruism, but because of fear. Fear of change, fear of being wrong, fear of the unknown if we let go 
of what we now hold and cherish to be incontrovertibly true. The Jewish religious leaders and the Roman imperial power colluded to have Jesus off because he was a threat to the systems that they oversaw, the status quo, and they were deeply afraid. They offed him because they in some way intuitively or theologically knew that his wine would burst the old wineskins. Well, Jesus also talks about cloth and cloaks. He gives us this very curious image, which almost seems to work against the image of wineskins. He says you can't sew a new patch on a hole in an old coat. So wouldn't this then call for an old piece of cloth to serve as a patch on the old coat? In this case, the old would be as good or better than the than the new. The Proverbs are famously full of this kind of seemingly contradictory advice whose wisdom is only seen as the reader encounters various situations in real life. And perhaps that's similar to what Jesus is doing here to make the same basic point that the old and new don't mix that Jesus' kingdom can't be adapted into your current life and thinking. It can't be adapted into the political forms that exist. It can't be simply adapted into economic systems that are inherently and intrinsically oppressive. You see, it's not this new form of yoga to be added to our current practice. It's not a new insight into our current thinking about God, but The kingdom, Jesus' teaching, it calls everything into question. And our social lives, our political lives, our religious lives aren't merely rebooted as much as they are raised and rebuilt from the ground up. And this is what Paul is getting at in our New Testament reading when he tells us that a Christian is a new creation as significantly different from what came before as the universe was different from the dark chaos that preceded it. Well, thirdly, the image that comes first, Jesus talks about fasting at a wedding. And what sort of party would it be for the bride and the groom if all the wedding guests just sat around looking at the food and not eating? Jesus' disciples were sort of fasting from fasting. But what kind of fasting were they fasting from? It's not likely that Mark is telling us that they never went went without food or drink for the purpose of spiritual renewal. While that may be true, that's not really his point here. It's more likely that they were skipping out on the specific credentialed religious fast that in those days generally memorialized times of trauma in Israel's history, such as the destruction of the temple in 587 587 BC. And what this skipping out on fast is meant to convey is that to continue to observe those fasts is to fail to recognize this new movement of God, which will transform the meaning 
of the historical events that those fasts memorialize to begin with. You see, their history, that is Israel's history as a traumatized people of God, is presently in Jesus' day being transformed by the advent of new life, of new creation, of resurrection, of the story in the person and the work of Jesus. And they were missing it. And so Jesus was not simply teaching them about this new thing that would intrinsically and necessarily replace fasting. He simply dropped out of the practice and his disciples did the same. And it was a very visible way to point to something new. Now we can't really fault the religious leaders. We can't fault these people who are challenging Jesus all that much. We can't fault them for missing the significance of this nobody preacher from the middle of nowhere. That they would be skeptical that this small band of misfits contained good news that would transform their historical trauma that was centuries old and which had been renewed again and again by successive political empires, that they would be skeptical that that's what Jesus was transforming and that this small band had the power to do that. Can we really blame them for that? How could something so infinitesimally small completely upend and transform their world? How could something so infinitesimally small completely upend and transform their world? How indeed. The connection to our present crisis is almost too obvious. Something so inauspicious, so tiny, invisible in almost all circumstances is bringing the entire world to its knees. It's humbling kings, presidents, corporations, entire economic systems, things that generally hold our devotion and faith in times where God doesn't seem quite so necessary. These things are failing us. And suddenly, we're all fasting. Fasting from things that we would almost never choose to go without. Going to work, surplus in our bank accounts, closeness to our friends and family, shaking hands with our neighbors or our colleagues, hugs for crying out loud. And for those of us or those of you who are listening, who live alone or are quarantined in a solitary way, I just pray that God's presence is especially near to you today. But here's the hope, not only for those of us who are enduring a particularly acute solitary existence right now, but for all of us who are enduring uh, something that is like trauma and perhaps is traumatic in ways that we know and can identify in the loss of a job or ways that we haven't quite been able to put our finger on yet. Here's the hope that in the same way a truly 
hungry person appreciates a meal in a more pronounced way than those of us who rarely go hungry. Maybe those things that are most essential and yet most overlooked in their frequency and abundance, that these things can be remembered, that they can be recaptured for what they really are when they finally re-enter our lives. Maybe no human touch or physical closeness will ever be taken for granted again. Maybe we Americans will begin to notice how interconnected we really are and how neither our wounds or our healings take place in the vacuum of individualism. Maybe our relationship with church will be different, hopefully enhanced, that we might see the church as the institution whose mission is most dependent upon the collapsing of physical distance between people, that its mission is most dependent upon the necessity of human touch and sharing of tangible resources and the experience of bread and wine as carriers of spiritual life. Maybe we can clue into that again or for the first time, the tangible things that physical spaces are alive with the presence of God. And hopefully, most of all, this sudden enforced fasting will bear fruit in the area that fasting is most explicitly designed to, leading us, as Macrina Whitaker says in the quote in the bulletin that I shared with you, into the arms of that one for whom we hunger. In the divine arms, we become less demanding and more like the one who holds us. Then we experience new hungers. We hunger and thirst for justice, for goodness and holiness. We hunger for what is right. We hunger to be holy. Though Jesus' disciples were not regularly fasting, we are told that Jesus constantly pulled away to be alone during his ministry. And we're less than a chapter removed from his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness in chapter 1. And so as we deal, almost all of us certainly, with not only a little cabin fever now and in the coming weeks, but also as we struggle with acute loneliness, with maybe despondency, with long-term social isolation and the physical and emotional and spiritual tax that that can place upon our lives, with being cut off from friends and family, we can remember that Jesus is the Savior who experienced social isolation for us. He is the Redeemer who suffered a loss of community for us, 40 days in the wilderness on our behalf. And he's the one that throughout life experienced poverty and loss and death 
on our behalf so that we could one day live. May we understand his solidarity with us as we taste just a bit of the desolation that he experienced for us. And may that renewal of spiritual life grow like a virus into our lives that really nothing is ever the same again. Let's pray. Father, let your gospel take root. Let it overflow its boundaries. Let it explode all of the containers that we try to place upon it. Lord, I pray that it would take hold of in-town church, that we would grow to even more desperately need each other in those times in the coming months where we are able to get back together, that we would have that sense of belonging and solidarity with one another, a, a, a deep longing for human touch and closeness and community, and certainly the bread and the wine that you give us to bestow your grace upon us. And I pray for all of us, wherever we are gathered, wherever we are scattered, wherever we are in isolation, that your presence, that your spirit would be upon us. Amen.